Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. There's an old file cabinet in the basement of my home. Inside that is a folder with the heading Pierce. The folder contains articles written by Charles Pierce. Old pieces, hard copies, you know, on paper, from trees. I haven't thrown out those articles because I occasionally go back and read some of them again when I'm trying to write and need inspiration. With that in mind, perhaps you'll understand my excitement about Charles Pierce being a guest on this episode of PressBox Access. Pierce has been a pillar in the Boston journalism scene since the 1970s, and his work has appeared in numerous national publications to widespread acclaim. Charles was kind enough to pause from his current job as lead political writer for Esquire magazine to join us and reflect on his experiences as a sports writer. Our conversation rolled so effortlessly that we went longer than usual. So we're going to make this a two-part episode. Enjoy this part one. Charlie, thanks for walking into this den of iniquity known as Press Box Access. Well, I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking around at the iniquity, and it's all, you know, obviously very high-tone, uh, high-end iniquity, so I'm feeling very comfortable here. Well, it's too bad we couldn't go to the Fours up in Boston. We could have had Johnny the bartender. Well, he couldn't go to the Fours even if, even if you were here. The Fours was a, was a COVID casualty. We, you know, every, almost every one of, you know, my favorite writers, you know, post-game uh, bistros is gone. Uh, the original Runyons in New York, the Lions had in New York. Uh, you know, obviously the Fours down the street, although... I'm more of a Sullivan's Tap guy myself. They got the the old old line bar about a half a block uh, towards the garden from the fours. Uh, and I remember one the uh, the bean pot the uh, the college hockey the annual college hockey tournament with the four Boston schools lost its liquor license because it had underserved it had served an underage drinker. Uh, I don't know. I guess the year before. And it lost its liquor license for one night of the tournament. So I get off the subway and I'm walking into the, the garden and I look over and there's a line around the corner to get into Sullivan's. And so I, I go see what's up this. So I, get in, I walk in there, I, get in, I go into Sully's and I ask the, bar, the old bartender there where, uh, when the last time they had a line to get into Sullivan's was. And he said, VJ Day. <laughs> Well, it's funny well, anyway. sports writers sports writers start off talking about bars. You'd get the schedule for whatever team you're covering, and you would look at the cities, and they're like, oh, Indianapolis, slippery new to win. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one, of the, uh, one, of the great, one of the great impromptu moments at the Noodle, uh, the, whoever was playing there that night, uh, somebody in the, in the audience, some, you know, inebriate, was yelling for them to play Hendrix, play Hendrix, play Hendrix. 
So finally, the guitar player, and luckily, I can do prop humor, uh, uh, you know, says, okay, fine. We're going to do the only Hendrix song we, we know, but we need your help. And I'm sitting there going, what, did Hendrix didn't do a sing-along? What, you know, what are we going to do, sing-along to Are You Experienced? Right. Uh, and the guy says, no, no, I want you to do, I want everyone to pick up their beer bottle. And so we all pick up our beer bottles. I don't have a beer bottle. I have a Gatorade bottle here. Uh, but uh, he says, you know, let's, uh, you know, you know, I, I'll, this is what I want you to do. And so like, you know, it was a jammed. It was, I think a final four, as I recall, it might've been one of the Olympic trials or something they had over there. Anyway. Uh, so he said, pick up your bottles and do this. And of course everybody went on their beer bottles and the guitar player went, down, 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 down. Oh, oh, we know. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'm so sure the noodle, goes and, to the noodle and I appreciated it. The noodle and, I, noodle and I are old friends. Well, Charlie, I've, I've been a student of your writing all these years, and I appreciate your time joining us. I know you're very busy on the front lines of our insane political world with your Esquire blog and your articles. Uh, but obviously, we're going to talk uh, about your career in sports writing because those who know you have, as a political writer, um, you've actually spent bulk of your career doing a lot of sports and in different magazines and Boston Herald, Boston Globe, the old Boston Phoenix back there, the alternative paper back in the seventies. So, um, I was just curious real quick, when you think about all these years in sports writing, how has that informed your work in the blood sport of politics? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you do sports writing correctly and, Certainly a lot of the people you've already had on this particular uh, uh, podcast have, have done it correctly. You really did get to cover almost everything that was important in society as a whole. You had to, yeah. you had to deal with race. You had to deal with uh, the influence of mass media in its many forms from, you know, the invasion of television into everything to the invasion of the internet into everything. Uh, you had to deal with, you know, poverty. You had to deal with, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of descent from political activism into 80s and 90s, greed is good, and now back into activism again. So if you keep, if you cover sports and you keep your eyes open and you pick the right stories, you're doing all, you're doing all of that anyway. You, you've got an invaluable window uh, in, into everything else that's going on in society. And, you know, I can talk to, you know, uh, you know, a, a congressman from inner city in Cleveland uh, because I've been, I, you know, I went to the Huff to cover basketball years ago. Right. Or I went to, you know, I went to Bed-Stuy or Roxbury in Boston, to, you know, to, cut, to, you know, to cover and to write about athletes. Uh, so I think, you know, as I said, if you do it right, and I like to think I did, and as I said, a lot of the people you've had on the, you know, a lot of people you've had on the, on the show here, uh, have done, then, you know, you're essentially covering America, which is what political writing should all be about anyway. Right. I always took the tack that I was a sports writer, but I'm really writing about people and people as they try to exist in this contrived environment of sports in the changes well, yeah, I mean, and I mean, the culture. You're, and, dealing, you're dealing with people who are living, you know, quite unnatural lives, and they're doing it in the full view of the public. And I always say one of the, re one of the reasons I enjoyed writing sports was to watch sports. 
Uh, you don't get to see, you know, you know, live demonstrations of human excellence in that many areas these days. And not only that, it's the only entertainment, you know, genres of entertainment that we have that's a true mystery. I mean, there are thousands of productions of Hamlet all over the world, uh, you know, every, every year. I, I, there's, a, there's actually a number. Somebody counted once. I can't remember what it is. And it's Hamlet in modern dress, Hamlet in drag, Hamlet in traditional costumes. But the fact is, in all those performances of Hamlet, Hamlet always dies at the end. Right. Sports is entertainment where generally you don't know the outcome. And that's, you know, that to me, that's wonderfully entertaining. And, yeah. you know, how and, many times, and, how many times did you sit there and you go, oh my God, I can't believe that. And then you got to write it. <laughs> well, that's just it. All right. Well, let's talk about this night. Let's talk yeah. about this night. It's 1986, game six. It's the Buckner game. Everybody knows the Buckner game. By the way, I think I have friends who tell me that Mookie be beats out the hit, that he beats out the roller, even at Buckner Field. Well, nobody, I mean, I don't believe, I mean, I, I've, God knows I don't even know, want to know how many times I watched the replay in my life. But I don't think Stanley gets the first base. I think whoever told you that is probably right. You know, the, the, the real problem in that, the real problem in that game was that, you know, they left, you know, Cal, Calvin Schiraldi was out there in a state of catatonic shock and they left him in there for about three batters too long. Uh, but, uh, you know, throwing incredibly straight and incredibly slow fastball. Uh, slow balls. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it was, I mean, it, it began as, you know, it was a miserable night, first of all. It was, you know, October and it was raw. And were you in uh, the auxiliary press box? Or were I you was inside? in the aux box on the on the on the you know in what a you know apparently was ordinarily a a a, a luxury box down the first down the third baseline. There wasn't right much the luxury at Shea Stadium. I know that. Well, well, Fenway, you're in right field in the right field the right field bleachers. You're not even indoors. This oh, is I sat out there. I sat in Fenway out there for a World Series, and I had the, the fans around me chant, media, media sucks, media sucks throughout the game as I was trying to write. Yeah, the right field bleachers <laughs> in Fenway were, were, were a lot nicer when it was just gambling. All right, well, let's get back to Shea. Let's get back to Shea. The Red Sox are on the verge of ending this curse, and there's a slow roar to Bill Buckner. You already have things written. It goes long before that. I'll get, I, there's, there's a prologue to the story. All right. In the American League Championship Series, in uh, Game Five, they're being, the Red Sox are losing uh, to the Angels, and a friend of mine is he, he's leaving business after the series. When he's leaving, he's leaving uh, the business whenever the baseball season ends, and so the Red Sox are down. You know, a couple of runs, and they're and they're running out of chances, and the Angels are going to win the series. And my friend starts unloading his, you know, overloaded briefcase that he probably hasn't cleaned out, you know, since 1981. Uh, and uh, you know, he, he he's throwing away notebooks and media guides, and you know, Mary essentially he's throwing, he's throwing stuff up in the air. He's already written his lead about how the Red Sox lost the series to the Angels. And then Dave Henderson comes up. You know, we, they, get, uh, they get to one strike away, just as they eventually would in the series. 
and the Angels, the Angels do. And then Dave Henderson hits the ball in the center field, and the, the Red Sox eventually lose the game, and my friend starts digging around in the trash can to get all his stuff back. <laughs> all right? So, so I've already seen what can happen if you, if you get too cocky with, you know, two outs and one strike away. So I'm up in my, the Ogs box, and I've written my, my, you know, at least the top of my Red Sox beat the curse sidebar. And, uh, you know, and the, the other side. This is for the Boston Herald, right? This is when, right, this is when I was up yeah. at the Herald. Exactly. Uh, and before I started writing columns there. And so I had done that. And I, I, I my other sidebar was going to be Dave Henderson, because if you recall, he hit all run that put the Reds. He hit a home run in extra innings that put the Red Sox ahead. And then Marty Barrett has hit, got an RBI and they were up by two going into the fateful, you know, Buckner inning. And so I was going to write about Dave Henderson in this extraordinarily, I had a reasonably good relationship with him. And, you know, he's had this incredible postseason where, you know, he's, they're going to be putting a statue to him, you know, up in, uh, outside of Fenway because he's, he's, you know, he won the Angel Series for him. And now, you know, he, now he's won the World Series for them. So I got everything planned out. I've, you know, written a huge chunk of Dave Henderson bio. I've got my beat the curse lead, you know, you know probably five paragraphs. It's all done, and then, uh, and then it all happens. And I wind up going down to the bowels of the stadium, as you do in big events like that, uh, to, you know, just so you get in the locker room, you won't get tied up in the elevator for, for you know, an hour and a half or whatever. And so I'm, out, I'm in the hallway outside the Mets, uh, or the Red Sox clubhouse, and stuff starts happening outside and you start hearing cheering. And I can't remember who it was, had a transistor radio and they had it on, they had it onto the, uh, the broadcast of the game. Well, wait a minute, a transistor radio in 1986. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a guy, I mean, I don't know if he was expecting, you know, we were all going to have, you know, a, a power outage or something and we're all going to need the need a crystal set or something, but he had it. I can't remember who it was. And we were listening to it. And then all of a sudden, this battalion of riot police comes tromping down at, at you know, at, at, at double quick down the, down the passageway towards the field. And now we're figuring, hey, what the hell's going on out there? And that was the way I heard the, wild, the Stanley Wild Pitch and the Mookie Grounder. And as I was listening to the radio, the people came in, some attendants came in and rolled the champagne out of the Red Sox locker room and then wow. rolled, collected all the world championship T-shirts and put them in a bag and rolled them out the Red Sox. Wow. So you didn't actually see it, the ball go through no, a bucket. No, I didn't legs. see. In fact, I didn't see the Stanley Wild pitch that, that set up the eventual disaster. For a week after the wow. World Series was over. Wow. Because yeah, the next day was supposed to be Game 7. It got rained out. Uh, so we had an entire day to do nothing but think about Game 6. Uh, so we all went to Runyon's to think about it. And Of course. And just, just as a sidelight, uh, my friend Mike Madden, uh, the late Mike Madden, who used to write for mm -hmm. the Boston Globe and I, uh, Madden was a real horse player. And so we were watching the races 
from, I think, Aqueduct at that point. And Randy Galloway, that scamp from Texas, <laughs> decided we should all, you know, start gambling on the races we were watching. And it took Ben and I like a half an hour to realize that they don't run on Sunday in New York and that Galloway had been past posting us on Saturday's races <laughs> and had taken us for, you know, I don't even know how much money at that point. Well, so take that us back to Shake. What? Take yeah, that livened up the that livened up the, uh, the the rain you know the rain out day. Take us back to Shea. You're down there outside the clubhouse. The Red Sox blow this game in horrific fashion, and now you have to go into the Boston clubhouse. What was it like in there? Oh well, it was you know it was it was in shock. You know, and like I said, Calvin Chiraldi was catatonic. I mean, you could you. I mean, I approached a guy. I sat there with about five other people or, you know, and then, then eventually about 40 other people, uh, you know, around him. And he was staring, you know, at something, uh, you know, 25 or 30 feet that away that only he could see. <clears throat> and then I don't know who it was went over and told oil can Boyd whose turn it would be to pitch in the seventh game that Bruce Hurst was going to pitch in the seventh game and oil can went, to, went into hysterics. Mm. I mean, sobbing and screaming and crying. And, and it, so it was, it was extraordinarily strange. Uh, and, you know, eventually I wound up, you know, leaving the locker room and going to the interview room. Did Buckner talk at his locker? Boy, uh, eventually. Yeah. Uh, I know they didn't bring him out, you know, to, uh, to the interview room. They brought the managers and, and I think, I think Marty Barrett came out because Marty Barrett would have been at Marty Barrett or Bruce Hurst, probably Marty Barrett would have been the MVP of that series. Hit 414 in the world series and would have, you know, hit, you know, one of the insurance, you know, insurance runs and what would have been the deciding game. I was, I, at this point I was robotic. And the only thing I had in my mind was that I had to get upstairs and, and, and somehow make sense out of this in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went up, you know, I'm, once again, I went to the elevator, went upstairs, sat down, erased, you know, all of my, uh, my previous work and just turned off, you know, most of the circuitry in my brain and just wrote, 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 wrote. And then, you know, the lights went out in the stadium and I didn't even notice uh, sure. the, the Red Sox traveling secretary, somebody had, had, had hung around uh, in Shea after the game and thrown a bottle into the darkness and hit the Red Sox traveling secretary in the head. Really? I didn't even wow. know that. Jeez. I didn't know that for another week. <laughs> Damn uh, it. Because I was so focused on, on getting words into the little telegram and praying that the telegram would work. And then, uh, you know, I, 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 to this day, I have, I don't remember what I wrote. I really don't. I mean, I, I, I assume it was coherent and people seem to enjoy it, but it was, I, I've never been on complete automatic pilot like that before or since. I mean, it was an, it was just an, it was, it was appalling and wonderful and an experience <laughs> I, you know, I've dined out on, you know, ever since then, but boy, at the moment, it was something I would never want to go through again. I mean, like I literally, I, I didn't I didn't know if I was at this point if I was writing in in like Sanskrit. I had no idea. 
I was just putting words into the machine. Well, if I was there, I, would, I just would have gone with it was a dark, stormy night and said, screw it. This is what you're getting. I toyed with the idea of using of music for my lead, and they were all hit by a train in the end. Oh. But I, <laughs> I decided that my desk wouldn't understand it, which is one problem yeah. I had, you know, with the desk at the Herald very often. Well, those, uh, are the, those are the kind of crazy moments that, like you said, in sports, you just don't know what's going to happen. And you have had those moments all over the world. Um, you know, sports and politics can be crazy. It can also take you to places that you never thought you would go to at some point. And in 1988, you were at the Summer Olympics in Seoul, Korea, and um, something else crazy happened there. First of all, I, I have heard, sources have told me that the writer across the hall from you in the media village was my longtime dear friend and mentor, Tom Archdeacon. Tom was, yeah, he was across the hall. Uh, and uh, he was, uh, well, Arch is, Arch is a force of nature, as you know. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a large, a large, hairy, Sasquatch-looking beast. And a wonderful, <laughs> and a wonderful, and a, and a, and a wonderful guy. And he and I, and the late Shelby Struther, who is probably my best friend in the business, and God knows died a couple of decades. 1991, fabulous writer. Yes. Yeah, a couple of decades too soon. Uh, anyway, we were hanging together through most of the Olympics. Anyway, uh, we lived in, a, in, you know, in, in what was then the press village, uh, which were these apartments that they'd thrown up, I think, in about 11 minutes. But they were planning on on renting out as soon as the the media was the the Olympics were over. So one morning we had these these wonderful uh, Korean housemaids who you know would come up and you know do you know clean the rooms and stuff when we were out working. And so it was right towards the end of the of the games when you know you didn't have to get up real early anymore because there wasn't a lot going on except for track and field. And I was up and, and getting something for breakfast. And I heard this ungodly scream out in the hallway. And I went to the, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what it was. I went to the door, I opened the door. And what happened was that the, the, the little Korean uh, housemaid had been confronted at the door by Tom Archdeacon wearing only his boxer shorts. <laughs> and I don't think she'd ever quite seen anything like Tom having been rousted out of bed, you know, wearing only his boxer shorts. All right. <laughs> I can't wait to was, talk to Tom. He was, in, he was incredibly terrified. All right. Well, let's get back to sports. At those games, the crazy thing that happened, obviously, is Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson defeats Carl Lewis in their showdown 100 meters. Ben, whose eyes looked 40 shades of yellow, sets the world record, is the big story. And you think, you think you're done, right? You think you're well, finished. Well, no, so. that, first, first, first of all, and you can ask anybody who was in the stadium, uh, in the, I mean, and Tony Kornheiser and I have discussed this. Regardless of what happened subsequently, it was one of the greatest sporting moments I had covering sports. It was one of the greatest moments I had covering sports. Why everything do you say that? about everything about it was perfect. I mean, the the time of day, the importance of the event, the way the light was falling. I mean, everything was like 
if you were if you were if you were filming a sports movie, this is what you would have filmed. It was extraordinary. The, the stadium was just absolutely electric. And then they, you know, they fire the gun and and Ben Johnson comes out of it like this bull. I mean, the guy was first of all, the guy the guy looked like Emmett Smith. And as you said, his eyes were, an, uh, you know, an, an inhuman color. And he just, you know, he blazes through, beats Carl Lewis, the, the, you know, the world record falls. It was just a great thing. So we all go, you know, I go, all, all, I, you know, we all go crazy about this wonderful thing we just saw. And then I went out with Arch and Shelby to uh, Itaewon, which is the uh, bistro and shopping center that sprung up in, in Seoul, mainly at the time to when it when it opened to service the uh, American military presence there, but is now a kind you know kind of an you know an open air you know back and all. So we we stay out till I don't even know when, and you know I get I get to bed. I set my you know and just fall into bed. Boom, and I get a phone call after about I swear I got twenty minutes of sleep. And I wake up and, you know, the, I've got, you know, John Henry and his hammer working behind my eyes. And it's my boss from Boston. And he says, you got to get on. The, and, and, of course, deadlines, you know, the international dateline being what, they, what it is, you know, I was on deadline at 4 o'clock in the morning mm. because it was, you know, 11 o'clock at night in, in, back in Boston. So he calls me and says, you got to get, down there, something's going on with Ben Johnson. I said, so I get up somehow, I throw on the clothes that I had taken off 20 minutes before, get on a bus, you know, get on the the media bus, you know, which picks up, you know, it takes me down to the to the the media, the big media center. And I'm feeling awful. And I feel awful until I walk in and I see a table full. Of the Canadian guys, yeah, and I Johnson's from Canada, right? Yeah, because yeah, I instantly feel better because they obviously feel worse. Yeah. They have many of the same problems I have. Plus, they have to cover, you know, their country's Black Sox scandal in the next fifteen minutes, and you know, half of them are running out to the airport and buying tickets to Toronto to, in the hopes to be on the same airplane as Ben Johnson as he scoots out of town. And the, the Olympics people are trying to, you know, make sense out of everything. And, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a press conference where nobody knows, nobody knows anything except that he flunked a drug test. And they're trying not to tell you, what, you know, what he took. And, and the, 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 the representatives from the Caribbean nations, the Bahamas, Barbados, Jamaica, uh, you know, are all up there, you know, trying desperately, you know, to disprove the notion that, you know, all of their countries are basically open air pharmacies for track and field athletes. And I, it was, it was, and I had, you know, we all had about 15 minutes to put this whole thing together. Uh, and there were only two of us at the Olympics for the Herald. The Globe had, the Glo- Boston Globe had sent seven people, which is what they did usually at the Olympics. And there were only two of us. So, you know, we, we, I, I, one of my, my colleague, you know, the great Frank DeLapa, he went out to the airport and I stayed, you know, around Media Central. And then I wrote and I realized that given the time differential, I was done 
for that day. And the sun wasn't even up in Korea yet. Nice. But to this day, I will forever treasure the 20 minutes to a half an hour before that race when everything was still this incredible atmosphere and, you know, zeitgeist in the stadium. I mean, it was extraordinary. Well, to go from one extreme to the other within not even 24 hours, you know, and you throw in a trip to the bars with Shelby Strother and Tom Archdeacon, that's quite a day. Well, that was a rich full day, yes. That was an, that was an adult portion. That was, uh, I was definitely an adult dose. I wound, up, I wound up like buying a suit coat in Itaewon. I don't remember when, but I've only worn it like twice because it's incredibly garish. But uh, the, the prospect of writing on these bizarre deadlines uh, was just, it took some getting used to. Uh, yeah. You know, you, 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 you were on deadline, you know, back in Boston from about six in the morning, and then you couldn't file afternoon in Seoul. Except yeah, for the I remember, next day. I remember being at the Sydney Olympics and I was oh, on Columbus Dispatch and I, you couldn't figure out what day it was. Like you said, you're writing a running, swimming story uh, in, in the morning. It's like, what is going on here? Because I don't even know if it's Tuesday or Wednesday or what the date is. And uh, this is really before the, the internet had taken over uh, everything. So the challenge was just to figure out what the hell time is it? And what am I supposed to, what, <laughs> what angle am I trying to take here? Yeah, and by the way, riding a, a running on a swimming race is not easy because there's nothing going on. And well, the only I will tell you this. Whatever else you is, this. Going on, is going on underwater. Hey, I once wrote a running hammer throw story at the U.S. Track and Field Championships in Sacramento. My local guy was throwing the hammer. Now, you write three versions of hammer throw on deadline. Try that. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you know, unless the guy like, you know, Loses, you know, loses control of the hammer and goes into the stands like a, yeah. a you know, automobile tire or Indy and kills about eight people. You're really out of luck because basically it's a big guy grunting and then this thing flying through the air and taking, you know, a, a world-sized divot out of the ground. I think my second edition lead was Ibid. <laughs> so how did your local guy do? Did he win? Uh, he did not, but he did fairly well, and um, I must say it was a life experience, right? You know, I got the right running hammer throw, and that's what this is all about. I think back on all these years, 30 years of doing it, and, you know, you started doing it in the 70s, and you add up this this mosaic of experiences and places and people, and it is such a rich tapestry not just for a writer, but for a person. And you started back at Marquette University in the 1970s. And I think one of the things that, that I, I always tried to take this tact with writing was um, be curious. Nothing's new. I mean, it's happened before if you have a sense of history. And I think George Reedy at Marquette University drummed that into your head, too. He was the dean of the School of Journalism there. Yeah, he was, he, was, he was the dean of the school. He's the reason I, you know, did not become the one lawyer that broke the camel's back. Because I was, I was, I was not a, I was not a, 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 I was, let us say, an obstreperous student. Uh, you know, I realized very early on that, I you know, I, I, I walked into the J school 
writing better than most of my professors did. And I, <clears throat> I tumbled early on to the fact that that was not going to make some of them happy. But Reedy was the one who insisted that I, I, because at that point, you know, right now, the Diederich School of Journalism at Marquette is just a, a wonder. I'm constantly stunned by the improvement they've made. At the time, when I, when I, got, when I went to the J School, it had lost its accreditation the year before I got there. Oh, welcome. And so, look, Reedy insisted that I, be, and as such, to get enough credits to graduate, I had to fill up my schedule with other courses. So Reedy was the one who insisted that I, that I, you know, that I take a lot of history and that I, I, I take a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, had to, I had to take 12 hours of theology and I didn't want to sit there and listen to lectures about all these lugubrious Germans in theology, but I found a guy who taught scripture history. Uh, he taught like four courses in scripture history, which would fill my requirements. And I took all of them. Uh, he did a course on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He did a course on the Gnostics. You know, and, and so, you know, by the way, when, when Dan Brown and, 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 and Da Vinci Code came along, I was prepared and ready, baby. I had, I had, I had studied all this stuff. I knew the, game the gospel. Plan, of yeah. I knew the gospel of Mary, baby. Uh, anyway, uh, and so I filled it out that way. And he's the one who, you know, who, who impressed upon me that the main thing about making a career in this silly business is to stay curious, to maintain your curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and that while very little of what you'll be covering is unique in history, most of it is new. And it's new to your readers. It's new to you. And that stayed with me my whole career. And thank God for George, because... I mean, it was it was what sustained me through four years of, through four years of J school. I I would have transferred out of journalism, but there's absolutely no way I would ever have transferred out of Marquette. I I was having too good a time. Well, you were there at a great time to be a young sports writer. Obviously, the Marquette the basketball team. The program was being run by the colorful Al McGuire, um, the Bumblebees uniforms, the uh, yeah the, the characters. Uh, my next my next door neighbor in the dormitory. For two years was Maurice Lucas. Is that right? A great human being, a great guy, and taught me. Went on to more be went on to be a uh, went on to be a very good NBA player, obviously on championship teams, and yeah, you know. and and he taught me uh, just about everything I, I I know about modern jazz. He had this great record collection, and you know he'd play, you know, the Jazz Messengers or Weather Report or Jacob Pastorius. And I didn't know, I mean, I, I had grown up with my father on big band jazz and Dixieland jazz because that's what he listened to. And, and I, yeah, I rock and roll too when I, you know, developed my own taste. But I had, you know, it been, you know, the first guy who ever played Miles Davis's Bitches Brew for me was Maurice Lucas. Nice. Uh, All right. And he was, good it for, was a, good for Mo. He was a, I mean, he, I mean, he was gigantic. I mean, he was the biggest human I'd ever seen at that point. But he was a terrific guy. Uh, he was and, he, and a great neighbor. I mean, you know, things were quiet. I suspect that, you know, I, th I think that the, the calming presence of certain Native American religious vegetable compounds were involved. But whatever, you know, late at night, he'd be, you know, he'd put on, some, he'd put on you know, Coltrane or, or, or McCoy Tyner. 
and you, the, the walls were, you know, made out of paper mache at that point. And, you know, I'd have, you know, Coltrane coming through the walls. Couldn't nice. be asleep at night. All right. So it was, it was uh, you know, and as I said, I fell in love with the school. I fell in love with Milwaukee uh, and the, the industrial Great Lakes Midwest in general. Because you had grown up in New England and you grew up a college basketball fan. And that's kind of how you ended up at Marquette, right? Well, I, I to this day, and I, I embarrass Curry Kirkpatrick by saying this, his story that appeared in January of 1971, uh, which was my senior year in high school, uh, called Crazy Cat and the Curious Warriors, which was about the 1970-71 Marquette team, which was undefeated until they lost to Ohio State in the regionals. And in the game, Al McGuire said was the only time he'd ever been screwed without getting kissed. Uh, the only game Dean Nemerger ever fouled out of. Anyway, uh, Curry wrote the story about, you know, basically it was about, it was about the undefeated team, but it was about the whole, you know, wacky culture of Marquette basketball. And it's what flipped my decision to go to school there. Uh, wow. Because I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to go to J school and they had a J school. So that was cool. And it was Catholic university. So my parents couldn't complain that much. My, my Jesuit uncle was, you know, new people there and because <laughs> they'd gone to school together. And, you know, I had, I had this college, this wonderful college basketball experience ahead of me. So that convinced me uh, the, the, the last, you know, the last, uh, the last deciding uh, factor in my choice of college was Curry Kirkpatrick's story in Sports Illustrated. That's great. That's really great. The impact of sports writing, right? Think about it. You know, the impact of, of a sports story. The impact of, of Andre Laguerre's Sports Illustrated. Right. And with its incredible, you know, bench strength of talent with, you know, Dan Jenkins and Frank DeFord and Curry and Tex Molly and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to miss somebody, Mark Cram. Uh, on you know, on, that, right. th there are so many sports writers of my generation who went into the field because they wanted to a piece of what Sports Illustrated was selling. Right. And I think, I think, you know, I think that era of Sports Illustrated changed the whole game. Uh, it proved you could, you could write humorous, humorous and literate, you know, literate sports writing and make it sell. And I, you know, I know, you know, I, I, I know, you know, at least 10 people whom most of the people who watch this podcast will recognize who said that they got started, you know, waiting for that Sports Illustrated to come in through the mail slot on Thursdays. Yeah, I was I mean, I always tell people sure. that I, yeah. there was a time in my life where I couldn't think of anything better than being in Norman, Oklahoma with Dan Jenkins on a football afternoon. And then- right. Once as I grew up, I wound up in Norman, Oklahoma on a football afternoon. And I realized that the thing that made being Norman on a football afternoon great was being there with Dan because he took mm -hmm. you there, you know, from your suburban home in Massachusetts to this, you know, all these people he met. But otherwise, Norman is just kind of a, you know, college cow town. Right, right. Well, that was the key, taking you there as the writer. Um College basketball is kind of a through line for you when you think about your career. I know you entered the uh, U.S. Basketball Writers Association, uh, inducted you into the Hall of Fame um, in 2018, and you started with Al McGuire as a college student and covered so many uh, Final Fours and, and characters. 
What was it about college basketball that kept you intrigued as a subject to be written about? Well, I really, you know, I really started, my father and I uh, went to every home Holy Cross football and basketball game from the time I was about eight until I went away to college. Uh, so that's where the, the the love really came in. At that time, Holy Cross was playing like what passed for a national schedule in both sports. I mean, I, you know, I saw, you know, I saw Larry Zonka and Floyd Little play for Syracuse. Wow. You know, I saw Dave Robinson play for Penn, play for Penn State. Sure. They came to Worcester to play Holy Cross. Uh, you know, I saw, you know, Jimmy Walker play for Providence uh, because they came up to play Holy Cross in basketball. So you grew up uh, so with the sport. Yeah, I did, and uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I liked the the atmosphere of it. You know, it was, you know, I, I just like, I mean, I just like basketball. I always did. I, it was something that appealed to my, you know, to both my athletic sensibility, and you know, I, I, I think of the, the best line I think ever written about basketball uh, was written by Jim Carroll the uh, poet and rock star and at in, in his time, one of the best basketball players in New York as a high school student. He said, Bas- in basketball, you can correct your mistakes immediately and beautifully and in midair. And I think that's yeah. basically what, what has kept me going back to it. Yeah, as someone like myself who grew up in Kentucky, went to the University of Kentucky, it, I can relate in that I grew up with it. And and in the early part of my career, I was fortunate to be a beat writer for college basketball in the city of Cincinnati. Um, so I know looking back at my own career, you know, one of the special things was always the Final Four. I, I was fortunate to cover maybe a dozen of them. But that Saturday doubleheader, the atmosphere and the feeling, I don't know if that rang true for you too, but if so, what was it about college basketball and especially the oh, Final I mean, that, Four? That's a great, that, that 25 minutes is, is and, and of course, you know, now given, you know, the demands of television, that's a terrible deadline too for anybody who's there covering it because you almost never get, you almost never get to watch the second game uh, or at least a big portion of it. Uh, but yeah, that anticipatory hour, uh, you know, before, you know, I always try to get, to the Saturday doubleheader as early as I can because right. I just want to sit there and soak it in. And right. this is even when I'm not covering it per se. Uh, but the other thing that really energized my love for college basketball was that I was working at the Boston Herald and taking it on as a beat at the time the Big East was really exploding. And I had just wonderful coaches and games and athletes to hang with. Give us an anecdote from those days as a writer who was watching this Big East explode into what it became. What comes to mind when you think about it uh, from your perspective as a journalist? Well, I, you know, it was, it, what was interesting was that, it, you know, it exploded from virtually from nothing. Uh, and, you know, and it's, it, it exploded full-blown from the mind of Dave Gavitt, who saw everything that was going to happen in college basketball about a decade before everyone else, before, before everyone else did in two decades before it actually happened. And, you know, the great thing about the Big East was 
if you if you called at least prior to it's becoming you know a giant you know sports enterprise that eventually imploded on itself and reconstituted itself right as as it is right now uh was that you could call any of the coaches and they'd call you right back you call dave he'd call you back in five minutes <laughs> and so you got to i mean it there was a there was a fellow feeling uh, and, and we weren't homers, but there was a fellow feeling among the people who covered the league that we were all somehow being hauled along on this enterprise. And, you know, as I said, it was just, you know, you know, dealing with, you know, John Thompson and Louis Carnesecca and Rolly Massimino and Jim Beheim. My, co- the four, the four coaches are the, the, yeah, the four coaches in college basketball that I dealt with in Boston when I started at the Boston Herald were Gary Williams at, at BC, Jim Calhoun at Northeastern, Rick Patino, and then Mike Jarvis at Boston University, and poor Frank McLaughlin over at Harvard, who just, you know, and I would call, you know, we're talking about in, incredibly ambitious guys, everybody but Frank. And, you know, I would call each one of the other coaches and they would explain how crazy the other you know, the other two coaches were, and then I'd call Frank and he explained to me how crazy everybody was. So it was, <laughs> it was a terrific time. And, you know, I mean, Gary was burning, to, you know, just burning to get up, you know, eventually did to Maryland and, and Calhoun was burning to get into the big East because, you know, he had pushed Northeastern about as far as it could go. And, you know, eventually did the Connecticut and, you know, you talk about a, you talk about a career explosion. Uh, and, you know, Jarvis and obviously Patino, I don't have to tell you about him. And, you know, and Mike Jarvis was pretty much the same way. So it was, you know, it was incredibly fertile, uh, you know, time to cover college basketball. And it was, the games were, just, you know, the games were, you know, just some of them were just epic. Uh, you know, I think of, you know, watching, you know, watching Pearl Washington at Syracuse. You know, I, I was there the day he hit the midcourt shot to beat Boston College, that famous, you know, mm-hmm. video that, that ESPN has of, of uh, the late Tom Meese throwing the elbow to keep the people off him. I was under the table after the ball went through because people came over the table to rush the court. You know, George, every Georgetown Syracuse game was a German opera. I mean, it was, you know, it was two, you talk about two teams that really don't like each other. That's a cliche. Those were two teams that really didn't like each other. And, uh, that really energized it. And, you know, it's, it's never let go. Well, let's stay with basketball, but let's go into the pro ranks. Uh, you, you know, you're a Boston guy, Boston Herald, Boston Globe, grew up in New England. When you think of uh, Boston and basketball, the first name that comes to mind is Bill Russell, obviously. But in your era as a writer, it's Larry Bird. And uh, you wrote one of the great pieces that I remember as a young writer reading. That's the 92 Esquire piece, The Brother from Another Planet. It really was looking at Bird through the prism of race a little differently than everybody else was looking at the thing between Bird and Magic. Tell us about your experiences uh, with Larry Bird and uh, what went into that. Larry Bird is one of the most fascinating human beings I've ever met in either of my particular journalistic enthusiasms. Uh, he's just he's just an interesting human being. Uh, True. First of all. And I said this in a lot of different forums. He grew up in Southern Indiana, poor and white. In Southern Indiana, 
which was the birthplace, number one, of the modern Ku Klux Klan. And second of all, was a place so marked by white white supremacist violence that civil rights pioneer Jim Farmer wrote in his book that it was worse than Mississippi, that he found it more dangerous than Mississippi. And Larry grew up, by all indications, completely unmarked by that particular odious current of American culture. He doesn't see race. He never did. And he never saw it, as near as I can tell, he never saw it as a teenager. He certainly never saw it as, as, a, as, as an adult. Uh, you talk to, to you know, Jalen Rose or, or Reggie Miller about people, about having been coached by him. Jalen Rose says he saved his career. Uh, but Larry just, I mean, he, he didn't see it. He wasn't, mar- it didn't bother him. He hated the whole white alt thing because it was so different. It was so, it seemed so far out of his, you know, his, his, his ken. It was a, a dynamic he didn't understand. I think that's why your 1992 Escort piece, The Brother from Another Planet, left a mark on me because it made me see Bird in a different way. It was using the prism of race, but in a way that shone a light on that topic and Bird much differently than everybody else was kind of cookie cutting it. Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, he, I mean, he, he, he understood the dynamic of people using him for their own you know, nefarious psychological purposes. He understood that. He hated it, but he understood it. He had clearly studied it, you know, and thought about it. I mean, he thought about it deeply enough to reject it from the bottom of his soul, but he wasn't going to let it touch him. And it never did. You know, there are, and and there are, I mean, the great thing about, the, the interesting thing about Larry was that there were always myths about him. And that outside of, what we just talked about, the two presiding myths about Larry Bird were one, that he's not athletic. And that was based solely on running and jumping, which even track and field doesn't see as the summation of athleticism. And I've said for this, okay. to this day that anybody who thinks Larry Bird wasn't athletic never shook hands right. Because from the elbow to his fingertips, he was one of the greatest athletes I ever saw. The combination of hand-eye coordination. And his hands were battered. I mean, he kept breaking his fingers playing softball and stuff. But from the, for, you know, from the elbow to the fingertips, he was stronger than anybody I ever saw. You can count on, you can count on, the, you know, on the fingers of one hand the number of times people got a rebound away from him once he latched onto it. <laughs> and the other thing is, the easiest way to end up with an empty wallet at the end of a long evening is to think Larry Bird is dumb. Larry Bird is a very, very smart man. Uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, syntax is not intelligence. Unlettered does not mean unread. This guy is, is, is an extraordinarily intelligent person. Uh, and, uh, you know, somebody who has who's taken the lessons he's learned through his own life very much to heart and has evolved as a human being as much as anybody I've ever seen. I am, I, I am a complete admirer of the person that is Larry Bird. I mean, I think he, is, he, has, built a, he has built the life he wanted to build in his own way, and he's done it in a way that wasn't destructive to very many people, that wasn't destructive 
to, you know, many people. There was the whole thing about his daughter that he had when he was young that he, you know, had not brought mm-hmm. into his life. And that's a, that's a real brown spot on the apple. But by and large, this is a very highly evolved and very intelligent human being to say nothing of a, just another worldly, you know, basketball talent. That's, that's beyond a pro. One of the great things I used to love was getting to Celtics games early and sitting down and Larry would come out and shoot with Frank Atato, one of the assistant trainers, would fetch the ball and he would come out. First of all, he'd go up to the third, the third level of the old Boston Garden and run laps around the balcony. And then he'd come down and he'd just <laughs> shoot. And it was, it, was, it was like watching a sound check from a great band. You know, they tell the great <laughs> story about the Watkins Glen Festival where, where the Grateful Dead came out and did a sound check that went on for like an hour and a half. And then the Allman Brothers insisted on doing a sound check that went an hour and a half. And then the band came out and did a sound check that lasted an hour and a half. And a day before the show, people had already seen a great concert. That was like watching Larry. I mean, Larry would come out, Larry would come out and just, you know, he, he was very, very regimented, very, uh, you know, he had a very clear program of his pregame shooting. But it was like watching a master at work. I mean, it was like watching a great musician or a great artist. And that was one of the things that, because I was in the profession, I was blessed enough to be able to see because the garden wasn't open when he did it. I mean, nobody else was there except us. So who's in the building? How many people? The Celtic staff is in the building. And, you know, the, you know eventually at some point the other team shows up. So their staff comes in the building. But, you know, there's nobody in the stands, really. Uh, and then, you know, he ducks into the locker room and goes through whatever he has to go through. And then he comes out and the building's full and he starts the game. But it's those quiet little moments before the game that I, I, I really felt privileged to be around. Speaking of privilege, it's been all mine to have Charles Pierce on this podcast. And we're not finished with him yet. Part two of our conversation will be published on November 8th. That episode will include Pierce sharing more stories about Bird and discussion about Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, the NBA of the 1980s, the National Sports Daily, and other tales. Hope you can join us. I'm buying. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on.